Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. Hey y'all, this is Alex, your host of Liberation Bible Study. For today's episode, I am delighted to have with me Reverend Jasmine Beach Ferrara, who is Executive Director at Campaign for Southern Equality. Today we're going to be reading Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, through the theme of joy. Jasmine, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And we're having a lot of fun because we get to be in person for this episode. Which is absolutely delightful. And potentially some shenanigans in the best way possible. (laughs) (laughs) It's our practice on this show to introduce ourselves, our pronouns, our work, and our identities. Because we know that those always show up wherever we are engaging in these texts. Jasmine, would you introduce yourself further to us? Absolutely. My name is Jasmine. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. My work takes a few different forms. I have the honor of being the executive director of the Campaign for Southern Equality and being a minister in the United Church of Christ. We do LGBTQ work across the South. I also serve in elected office as a Blunton County Commissioner. And I'm also a chaplain for the Eklund Green Foundation, providing support to social change leaders. My identities are being queer, white, cis. Some of my core relationships are being a wife, a mom, a daughter, and a friend. And I'm Alex McNeil, and my pronouns are he, him. As you know, I serve as the executive director of More Light Presbyterian and live in North Carolina and identify as a white transgender man. And when I'm not Traveling around for more light, I uh, am taking care of horses and dogs and land where I live in North Carolina, which feels like the other full-time job that I have, but it has really influenced how I read texts around animals, and in today's texts of Jesus and the donkey, it's amazing how quickly I went to empathy for that little cult. The little cult. (laughs) I know, he was just hanging out. Maybe eating some grass, and all of a sudden you got swept into this epic, historic session. So our practice is to begin by reading the text, and in our first read-through, thinking about the context of what is happening in this passage. Jasmine, would you be willing to read the first go-through with us? Absolutely. Mark 11, 1 through 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As you read through this passage, what stuck out to you and what do you know about the context of this section of Mark? I love this passage in Mark, partly because of how specific it is in the minutia of this approach to Jerusalem. The kind of tension between that really drilling down into the level of detail of they approached the colt and they and they got permission and then they untied it and then they said this and um, sort of held up uh, alongside what we know will happen because we revisit this text year in and year out throughout the liturgical year and know the pain and the power of what's coming. Um, so to me, there's just a something very powerful about entering this story and really zooming in on and tracking uh, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to go deep with here. And I know we'll be talking about all of this in terms of sort of some of the specific symbolism, in terms of the significance of entering Jerusalem as a seat of power and entering in such a humble way in a lot of regards. But another piece that I always lock in on is that the first place Jesus seems to go in the city is right to the temple, uh, sort of on this recon mission. I think of it as where he goes in and looks around and it's late and then decides to actually leave the city again. And that sort of begins this process of entering the city and leaving the city and entering the city and leaving the city. So those are some of the things that I uh, tend to zoom in on when I'm with these, with these verses. Mm. How about you? Well, the first thing I noticed in reading it again from the context of having animals is, one, I love that they, they, they go and he says, find a cult that has never been ridden. That's interesting to me because I would not get on an animal that is not used to having someone ride you. Right. You would be thrown off so fast. What it takes to be able to ride a donkey or a mule, yeah. usually mules or horses, is a lot of hard work starting very young. And um, it was striking to me that Jesus was this specific. Yeah. And what we do know is that one of the reasons for choosing a young animal or a donkey was because he intentionally was referencing prophecy and prophetic texts that Jesus and those in Jerusalem would have been very familiar with. But just to be able to say, we're going to go ride a animal took, took me by surprise. A good friend of mine is preparing a Palm Sunday service for this week, and she called me and said, what does it take to have animals? What does it take to take care of horses? And I spent like half an hour on the phone with her explaining yeah. in detail what all it took. And so then the other part of this text where Someone says, what are you doing? And then the disciples say, here's what Jesus needs. And then they allowed it. It was, it was interesting that having that, again, like zoomed in. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, thank God. <laughs> For those of us reading this who have animals, like that's just rude, Jesus. Don't go stealing <laughs> Don't go animals. stealing someone's animals. I happen to be really allergic to horses. So I have very limited experience riding horses and colts and donkeys that have never been ridden before. So I trust you as our subject <laughs> that's danger <laughs> but yeah. i mean to to interact with an animal that you don't know right and it doesn't even sound like these guys 
knew this animal, even the per- people they right. passed. He was just tied up. Right. And it was some people standing by. Right. So no one knows what kind of animal this is. And I think maybe there's something right. in there around who Jesus was that animals react to calm and present people. And I think if Jesus were able to ride a animal that had never been ridden before, that must say something about his internal state. And powerful, as you say, how this is also this clear gesture and invocation of the prophecy, right? That your leader would ride in Jerusalem on a humble creature, right? Um, and I think that there's that piece too, which is sort of Jesus's omniscience throughout the story, not all stories, but Jesus's omniscience and the moment by moment coaching he's providing the disciples. Um, that I just, you know, I find that piece just very powerful as well. And you just, I, I don't know, you just think about that question of what was going through his head. Yeah. In sort of, on the one hand, seeming to orchestrate and willingly participate in kind of the public theater and procession of this. And on the other hand, this build up. Mm-hmm. It's interesting reading the text immediately preceding this one. It almost feels like Jesus is in a flow. Mm-hmm. You have the transfiguration story where Jesus is shining to his disciples and there's a message about what's going to have to happen to yeah. Jesus and an acceptance that maybe he is the Messiah. And then right after that, Jesus is just like doing the thing. He's healing people. Right. He's telling the rich young ruler it's going to take selling all your possessions to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're going to Pharisees like you're yeah. you know messing around. And I, I was reading that just to just to get a little deeper sense for what's been going on before. And it's this real sense that Jesus knows who he is and what he's up to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and yet they're also in this road to Jerusalem where he also knows that he's going to be handed over to the authorities and eventually killed for this sense of his own divinity and the calling he has in his life. And so it's interesting that just to watch as you say, the orchestration and the coaching of, okay, now he doesn't tell the disciples everything ever right. because they would freak out. And every time he tries to tell them more, they just freak out more. They just freak out more. Yeah. So it's like, just go get a donkey. And say these words. Yes. And then bring the donkey back. The other thing I, you know, that jumps out is as they begin the procession, you get it in eight. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the field. You have this sense of a chorus of people surrounding them and even a gathering crowd. And that sense that I think, you know, you, you have this you have this instinct understanding around the animal behavior piece of it, right? Uh, animal will respond in certain ways to spirit and calmness. And and you you just get that sense here, whether it's on that subtle level of the cult, kind of willingly participating in this seemingly. Right. The cult doesn't buck him off. Right. But also the way people are sort of accompanying them, joining them as they process. And he didn't tell anybody to do that. It doesn't appear. Right. Unlike these other places where there's very specific instructions. Mm-hmm. He's not saying, now lay down your cloak, lay mm-hmm. down your leafy branch. Which to me demonstrates how deeply the crowd, the people outside and, and headed to Jerusalem, understand the context. That they would see this immediately as a reference. Right. And to your point, he's also in the flow. And there's, you know, you have the sense that that's also in the air. I feel like once in a while you get to see a mortal human in the flow, you know, where you're just like, you are in the zone. Mm-hmm. And whatever, with whatever gift that person has, 
I think of Obama in the closing weeks of the 08 election. Like there was one night he did a town hall with John McCain and you were just like, this man is in the ball. Mm. You know, he just owned the room. Yeah. Or, you know, you can think of a million examples. That one always pops out to me. But the power of that and the contagion of that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, when you witness it in another mortal human. So you can kind of begin to imagine, at least at some level, what yeah. it might have felt like or how people might have been having their minds sort of blown in a way to be in the presence of the divine version of that. What do you think it takes to be in that kind of flow? That's a great question. When I see people in that space, it always feels like God is right there mm. and the Spirit's right there. And that they are letting themselves be a vessel. And I'm cognizant some of those, sometimes when I see that happening, that person might not use that language or those frameworks. But that's sort of how I understand it, is that someone's just tapped into this sort of very pure sense of their call mm-hmm. and alignment with the, the sort of space and time and sense of connect, like hyper-connectivity. Right. And they're just, I'm a sports nerd. So that's one place where some, you know, there's some nights where it's like you can't stop LeBron James. You just can't stop LeBron James. Yeah. 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 I don't know. What about you? What did you, you, you introduced that about the flow. What do you mean by that? Where do you see that? I think exactly as, as you're saying, and then thinking about it in terms of leadership, you know, both of us serve as directors of organizations that have big missions in the world. And I was trying to think about for myself, has there ever been a place where I felt like in that extreme flow where I'm completely aligned both within my own purpose but also within the wider purpose of the people and events around me and what it takes to really sink down into that is it is a connection with spirit and divine and at the same time a rooted and groundedness in the very specific pieces and places and people who are around me. Um, And almost when you're in a flow like that, it's almost an out-of-body experience. I don't know how LeBron would describe it. But it's it's almost not it's you and not you doing the movements. Like mm-hmm. how did I know to say that? For me, a, a flow happens in micro moments. It's not a whole week. <laughs> 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 but if I'm at an event and doing a question and answer session or, or something, and somebody asks a really hard question about learning to accept their LGBTQ child or how to have a hard conversation with a pastor who's anti-LGBT something comes out of my mouth that I hadn't thought in advance. And it's just that complete spirit moment of this is, this is flow. Does that resonate for you? It does. Those moments feel like precious gifts and absolutely moments when you're off script and, you know, sometimes happen and, you know, our work takes us all over the South and small town South and rural South. And I think of moments when we've been in like, small towns in Mississippi, Poplarville, Mississippi, and, you know, doing public direct actions around LGBTQ equality, that there are these moments where you just sort of let go and have this radical trust and spirit and try to be that vessel Mm -hmm. and off very transient, Mm -hmm. comes and goes, but when those moments open up, it's very powerful. Yeah. And what's so interesting just to bring it back to the text, is for so much of 
the book of Mark, Jesus resists labels and identity. Right. And to be in this moment when when he says, no, we're going to play the part now, but for a political purpose. Yeah. I, there's, as you were saying, in the, in the laying of the cloaks and cutting of the palm branches, that too is referencing other anointed kings coming into Jerusalem or waving palm branches after political victory. The people knew to do that, but Jesus is like, I'm going to give you this moment too, I think is an interesting piece of this. And our theme for this text is joy, because there is something that feels joyful in this political action. I think it's about subversion and reclamation and also prefiguring a world where they were striving towards and we're still striving towards, and all all at once. And I think there's a lot of joy in each of those elements. Mm. There's the joy and subversion of status quo and defiance of the status quo, queering the status quo, if you will. There's something very queer about this procession, you know? Yeah, how Um, would you describe that? Just, at the same time that it's invoking, you know, these prophetic images very intentionally, it also feels like there's this quality of subversion and irreverence. Mm. Because you know that the other procession that's happening is the imperial procession. So it's sort of simultaneously speaking to or this prophecy and speaking to the procession of military power that's also entering Jerusalem at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it, you know, and that's to me where it feels like the piece of like drag and performance and queer subversion that where you're taking iconic ritual and reinventing it to create a new a newly imagined world. That's mm-hmm. sort of what I see happening. Yeah. And even the use of joy in those moments that I think of the way in which formality is also a tool of oppression sometimes and, and used against people of, well, you weren't professional enough or you weren't taking it seriously enough. And here, joy and singing and riding on a donkey are expressions of joy in the face of real terror, political terror. Right, because a lot's at stake. You know, and I think that there's such power when so much is at stake, when lives are at stake. There's so much power in responding to traditional instruments and symbols and representations and expressions of power, like Mm -hmm. an imperial military procession. Not by saying, well, we're going to pick up our sticks and treat them as weapons, but by saying, we're coming to town on a donkey. Mm -hmm. And really embodying this other narrative and this world that you're kind of seeking to create, a world of peace. You know, one of the texts I read about this said that, you know, Jerusalem is the city of joy and the city of pain. Mm. Um, And it feels like the duality of this is that there's joy all through it and there's pain all through it. Absolutely. And um, even the idea of riding the donkey is in contrast to this idea of riding on a war horse. Right. It's already a symbol of peace. It's not, it's not a ridiculous animal. A donkey is a very useful animal, particularly in turning swords into plowshares. How do you plow a field but with, with a donkey, with a mule, to, to grow food enough for your community? I think that people would have also known 
the, the usefulness of a really good donkey. <laughs> right? And you are helping me see this text in any way. Due to my extreme allergies <laughs> to horses, donkeys, and such, I've spent my life at great distance from them. And that's, and that's a really interesting and helpful way to think about this, right? This is a workhorse. Yeah. Um, and in an agrarian world, that has a lot of currency. Do you feel ready to move into the second part of the reading? I do. As we heard the text again, how does this text call us to resistance? For me, the primary way it calls us to resistance is going into Jerusalem and asking that question, what is our Jerusalem? Mm. It's not just going into Jerusalem as a seat of power and going in as an act of resistance in and of itself, but it's about going into contestation instead of staying on the outside, instead of fleeing, instead of separatism. I think about this passage a lot doing LGBTQ work in the South against the backdrop of a history where some queer folks would migrate out of the South go into exile in other parts of the country. Folks who had the resources and ability to do so typically. The reality is queer folks have always lived in the South and always lived in every town. And I think that narrative is starting to shift and people are starting to understand that. But I've always understood our work at the Campaign for Southern Equality, CSE, to partly be about what does it mean not just to go into Jerusalem, but to live in Jerusalem. And how does the sheer active living day to day there function as resistance? And what happens when we push the envelope on that a bit more from the resistance that might happen in our private lives. And I'll talk about queer life here, which can look so many different ways, of course, but the resistance in our private lives, this is my family, I'm out to some people, and yet I sort of participate in this brokered arrangement where as long as I'm not too out, I'll be quote unquote safe. Mm -hmm. Versus enacting that publicly, saying, this is my family, we live here, this is our home, and sort of shouting that from the town square where you're breaking that treaty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, that, I think of that a lot in the work we do and in watching, I think, a lot of the activism happening across the South, not just around queer issues, watching things like the Newsom scaling the flagpole in South Carolina to take down the Confederate flag. To me, that's being in Jerusalem. And a lot of the powerful Black Lives Matter activism, the Charlotte uprising that happened, is about being in the center, in the town center, in the city center, saying these are our streets, when safety is not at all guaranteed. Absolutely. As I was thinking of this passage and knowing that you and I are going to be in conversation, realizing that this is an act of political theater and very calculated but in a in a joyful way I was so reminded of the work that Campaign for Southern Equality has done through the We Do campaign such a very astute look at how in, within Jerusalem we too have agency to show the system for what it is would you say a little more about that campaign and and how it may or may not be related to this sure yeah so the We Do campaign was a campaign we ran from 2011 to 2015 all across the South. Thousands of people got involved with it and it was based on a very simple premise, which was queer couples going into marriage license offices in their hometowns to request marriage licenses 
and in all likelihood and in every instance be denied. Although we were always open to the possibility that spirit would move a clerk to grant one. But the premise was that you were going to deliberately provoke a denial and that we were going to do this all over the South. And there were a couple different layers to it. One of them was that we did enact this form of political theater, which always felt to me like public ritual. We would scout out communities with our local guides. Uh, it was always folks in, doing this in their hometowns. And the couples who participated, and in some towns it would be one couple, and in some towns it would be dozens of couples, um, would invite friends and family and clergy. They had supportive clergy in their lives. And we would meet about a half a mile from uh, where the marriage license office was, which was often a public administrative building or a county courthouse or something like that. Um, often a very, either a very stately or very municipal building <laughs> in a southern small town or city. We would meet in a private location and we would say a prayer and blessing in that location. And then we would process silently through the streets of that town. And sometimes it was Poplarville, Mississippi or Morristown, Tennessee or Mobile, Alabama or Gulfport, Mississippi and um, or Asheville, North Carolina. We would process two by two and we're very consciously creating spectacle. Mm -hmm. And it was a spectacle partly of this group of people processing silently through a city in the middle of the day or a town in the middle of the day. And it was also a spectacle of largely queer folks doing that publicly and people holding hands. One couple that we worked with, Monty and Steve, who had the chance to become friends with, lived in Wilson, North Carolina at the time for about 18 years and been together. And they were raising a son and everyone knew they were the gay couple with the little boy, their beautiful son, but no one ever talked about it. And the day that they took part in the We Do campaign in Wilson, it's right after the passage of Amendment 1 here, the morning after the passage of Amendment 1, and they held hands as they walked from the Episcopal Church they attend to the Register of Deeds office, and they later said it was the first time they'd ever held hands in public. And those moments have a lot of emotional power and impact. And when you unpack them, it's incredibly powerful to think that's the movement from what we do in our private world and doing that as an act of resistance in our public life to prefigure a world we're trying to create. And part of what we were aiming to do through these actions, we process to the building, we then stop outside the building and we do a public prayer service where we prayed for the families who were going to go inside, we prayed for the people who worked in the office, we prayed for people who were watching. Sometimes there'd be city employees or county employees hanging outside windows watching us. Mm -hmm. You'd look up and you'd just see this row of faces looking down because it was spectacle. But we'd pray with a lot of intention uh, and from a posture of empathy and being really clear that the target of this action was not the clerk on the other side of the counter who for all we knew was queer themselves, for all we knew would have very much liked to issue that license, but they felt bound by this discriminatory and ultimately persecuting law and that the target of the action was the law and the systems of persecution that bind us into thinking we can only love in certain ways and we can only express our genders who, in certain ways that punish us, basically. So we were very intentional about doing that, an act of public faith, an act of public resistance. And then the entering of the building and the being at the counter was sort of where the heat of it really happened. And that was about saying reclamation, saying, you know, this is a, this is a space that should 
belong to us as much as it does anyone else. Mm -hmm. We're members of this community. For some of the folks who were taxpayers, we are actually funding the operations of this office. Um, that wasn't true for everyone, of course, but in some cases. And saying, you know, why is it that on another day, why is it that it would be so jarring for us to walk in here and ask for a license? Like, why is that so jarring? Mm -hmm. We live here, we're actually married in our hearts, our spirits. And when you really begin to sort of peel back and dissect and break down the power that our law has to shape people's lives and shape people's understanding of what's possible, and then the way it gets enforced. And when you take action that disrupts that and resists it and provokes it, there's a tremendous amount of power in that. We were, with total transparency and hopefully appropriate degrees of deference, absolutely looking at the tradition of creative nonviolent resistance and direct action in the civil rights movement. When folks would sit at lunch counters, it was about taking this action mm -hmm. that would disrupt a brutal system of persecution and oppression and at the same time was this simple recognizable action. Yeah. I'm sitting at a counter ordering lunch. I'm walking up to a counter where I know I won't be served. And I think that sometimes we think activism, we think of activism as high theatrics. And it can be, and sometimes that's very powerful. And I think in the moment we're in, there's much more of that happening. But sometimes it can also be about kind of going right into Jerusalem and saying, we're simultaneously going to show up here and we're going to queer this moment in a way. Yeah. And as you were, thank you for sharing more about the campaign. And as you were, it made me think about, even for this text and for ourselves, not just the power that that ritual and public action has on the spectator, but the action the ritual has on our, on the actor, the person who's doing the ritual, maybe for the first time holding hands in their own town, realizing I can take up this space, I can climb this flagpole and take down this Confederate flag, that in this text I wonder if there is something that Jesus needed to do for himself in creating this parade into towns, like this is the beginning of the end, I'm provoking the authorities, I'm going to look around the temple, I'm going to look around the temple and see where I can provoke action. Because Jesus was in the flow and performing all these miracles in these outposts, communities. And he could have kept probably doing that for a while. Mm -hmm. Not indefinitely, right? We know at some point. But he probably could have kept going for a while. And that choice to go into Jerusalem, in some ways at the height of that, and to do exactly what you just said, I think there's so much power in that, and there's so much about that that I think is instructive. Mm -hmm. The great qualifier when we're talking about our mortal lives, I think, is how do people stay safe, and how do how do people negotiate questions of safety as they think about what it means? What is their Jerusalem, mm -hmm. and what does it mean to go into that Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. And those are hard questions. Yeah, sometimes if you're doing a protest, you can plan ahead with the police where and when your group is going to be arrested and where you'll be taken. And it's almost a part of the demonstration to have the arrest publicly happen and that everyone's in the know that this is going to happen. And then there are other times when you're in a, a march or a protest and people get arrested without any warning. And I'm thinking about Charlottesville. Right. When Or Charlotte, Charlotte Uprising. Moments when the state 
interrupts an action and the provoking that was meant to happen almost goes beyond what it was intended. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of different ways to unpack these things. And part of it is what is the power that's being provoked, you know, and how is it being agitated? And, the, and, and in that sense, I think there's a long tradition of sort of state power striking back with a lot of sometimes very targeted sometimes indiscriminate violence. And that was something I was very cognizant of in the work we did with the VD campaign and certainly cognizant of as a white southerner is part of our protocol was we would always call the marriage license office ahead of time and tell them the day we were coming, the time we were coming, and what to expect. Mm -hmm. And we would also call the local law enforcement office. And I was always very cognizant that think about black and brown friends who would not feel like it was safe to call local law enforcement and who would not feel like they were a potential ally during actions like that. Mm -hmm. For us, those judgments partly had to do with the reality that there were threats and that sometimes people who took part in the actions, you know, we always ask people to go through a pretty deliberate process of assessing the risks in their own lives if they were to come out publicly in their own hometown and, and via direct action. What's the risks of relationships to your job, to your physical safety, your spiritual safety? And if you get through that gauntlet and feel like this is a fit, then we'll be there to stand with you. Maybe two out of ten people we talked with got through that process. Mm. And most of those folks were white folks and folks who had a little bit more economic security and could contemplate, okay, if I come out and I lose my job, we're going to be able to get through that. Mm -hmm. And we always talked really intentionally about, and, and sometimes folks who couldn't be part of direct action would somehow still play a supporting role and be part of it. Sometimes they wouldn't at all. We always talked about that a lot. Is, you know, If every family that can show up here today, we know there's dozens in this community, because there are, mm -hmm. there's dozens in this community who wouldn't be able to take this kind of risk. But the reality was that, you know, we would experience periodic threats from folks who are really virulently anti-LGBTQ. And it's really hard to know when you get those threats how to handle them. And we determined that local law enforcement in some communities and federal law enforcement in some communities helps people stay safer as they do. Yeah. What was the response like when you would call law enforcement or the clerk's office? Really variable. I would always sort of brace myself for a wide range of responses, and it ranged from, with the clerks, with the marriage offices, it ranged from the kind of civil politeness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, noted, mm-hmm, to, in a few instances, people being supportive and making clear that people would be treated respect when they showed up at the office and finding ways to cue that they were down with this. Mm -hmm. To, in a few instances, that sort of chilling, you know, the protracted silence. Even when the calls went like that, once we actually were in the offices, there was only a few times where folks stayed in those cooler postures. Mm. And oftentimes, you know, people would bring their babies in. So there'd be babies and there'd be grandparents and there'd be pastors. I mean, we had, we did our best to, and that's a piece that I should have mentioned earlier. There was something somber and about that moment when the rejection occurred and it was often really hard and emotional for folks because it echoed 
all the kinds of rejections queer folks get in our lives. But we always work to make it joyful also in the sense that people are surrounded by people who love them and stood with them. And we worked really hard to have clergy at as many actions as we could, or I was always there as a clergy member, to send and part a message of like, you are, you are held in this moment and God is here with you in this moment. Because bringing, bringing joy into that site of resistance felt really critical also. And you would see clerks and staff in marriage license offices responding to pieces of that. Or at some point, you know, it's a 10-minute interaction to get through submitting a marriage license application and having it denied. And at some point, breaking from the script mm -hmm. and being like, I see you. Mm -hmm. And with law enforcement, it totally ran the gamut from departments that barely gave us the time of day to a department in a small town in Tennessee where one of the officers, who was a detective, showed up as we were preparing for the action. We were at this community arts center in an old school a few blocks from the office. And this detective showed up, and you know, you just never know what to expect. And he was like, hey, I just wanted to show up to let you know that we're going to take care of you all today. I have a gay cousin. There's a lot of clan activity around here, and we just want to make sure you all are going to be Mm. So there are a lot of moments like that. Yeah. Also. Which speaks to me of the power of political theater to call people to their best selves, to see something new, that it's an invitation for us, even if we think we know how an action is going to go, whether we're the county clerk, whether we're the person walking down the street you know, holding hands with their beloved or the pastor following along in the assembly. There's something upending about it that, that really overturns, for better or for worse, what we had imagined was going to happen. And usually for better, whether it's, um, well, that went better than I thought, or that person was nice to me, or, you know, queer people have babies too. Um, and I see joy as operating as one of those bridges to help bring people together. Yeah, there's that magnetism to joy. And I think if you can find a way to sort of practice that sensibility of radical hospitality through political theater and through political action and say this door is always open. We would always say that. We'd say, we think you're going to get denied a marriage license today. And we believe anything can happen once human beings see each other as fully human. So we're not going to give up on the possibility that a clerk made just be like, you know what? I'm going to do it. Mm. <laughs> now, that that didn't happen in the course of the actions we ran, but once the laws changed, that started happening. Right. And I think that was part of, you know, part of with political action and is always thinking through, okay, what's our target? And there's a lot of red herrings in that, you know, and there's a lot of way, there's a lot of sort of rabbit holes and false narratives where you can get stuck in thinking through sort of the arc of an action and in the sense of, like if the target of the action had been, we're going to convert that clerk in the 10 minutes we have with them and we're going to shame them because they're enforcing this persecuting law. Folks have run versions of this action with that modality. And that's not a critique of it per se, it's just a different emphasis, a different sort of ethical perspective on it. But when the target was, our goal is to shine a light on what happens the moment that law goes from the black and white letter of living as a stat, you know, being a statue into sort of a living, breathing power that says, no, you're not going to grant this license. Mm -hmm. That if we can shine a light on that moment and how human beings function in that moment, 
that's what this partly was actually about. And the other was telling the story that queer folks live in every single town in the South. Some of them want to get married. Some of them have zero interest in ever getting married. And of course, that's a whole other conversation, right? Is all the kind of conversations within the queer community about marriage. But what, the story we were trying to tell is there are queer folks in every single town in the South, and we're no longer willing to participate in this brokered arrangement where as long as we stay quiet, as long as we don't demand full equality, we're going to quote unquote be safe in this town. And marriage, like Passover, as we know that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem at a very specific time. Yes, the Roman Empire is marching in, but it's also the lead up to Passover. Right. There's a symbolism there. The stories of Jerusalem in its older days, the stories of bondage, the stories of liberation would have been on the lips of everybody. Yeah. And in the using the word Hosanna, the translation is save us, which is so... I mean, stark. And in Passover, Jewish people were liberated, liberated and saved from the Pharaoh. And here Jesus is coming in in the hopes of some of the people to save them from the Roman Empire. In a campaign like we do, save us from the blanket of silence that has like crushed our communities and using marriage as a moment that was generating momentum and something very public queer people can do in their in their demonstration of queer life as just this perfect convergence of how to be visible in a way that is also something that is translatable to people in, in, in these kind of very close-knit communities. Yeah, and the power of this procession happening, leading into Passover, I mean, one, it creates an occasion for it. Of course they're going into this. They didn't fabricate an occasion. But yeah, it's also speaking to... I mean, it's speaking to the prophecies, and it's speaking to this very embodied and common vocabulary around the meaning of this and mm -hmm. this concept of being saved and of liberation from state power. So I think that there's a piece of that too, right, where it's like, where can we find in the fabric of our kind of shared vocabularies, whether that's because of geography or culture or the age we live in, where do we find these moments that present themselves and create opportunities for public for public theater of resistance mm -hmm. that also allow us to sort of springboard from that shared history into hopefully the communities we're creating that are hopefully more just and more equitable. Yeah. You know, closer to the beloved communities. Yeah. This feels to me like we're ready to move into our third section around moving from theater as resistance to what it shows of liberation. In this third reading, what vision for the work of liberation does this text offer? I see a few things. One is that it's sort of all hands on deck. I understand Jesus as this sort of omniscient figure who, as you said, is sort of directing, stage managing the, the cult that hasn't been written, not the other cult. <laughs> you know, with a lot of specificity, but he's engaged, he's creating roles and opportunities and things for people to do. And without, if it's just Jesus coming into town on the cult, there's no procession. You know, that it's vital that it's all hands on deck. Something that's been sticking out to me that I can't quite let go of is the spreading leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Cutting in the fields. It makes me think about maybe people who were working as laborers, harvesting, that they were already in the fields, like they had, they were doing cutting already, and so yeah. they had these extra branches. And... 
I love the liberation of participation, the ways in which Jesus engages multiple people, but also multiple kinds of people. There's the people who were, I think they're living in the city, but they're standing next to the cult. They get involved. Yeah. Laborers, potentially, who had been working in the field, and then those who were just kind of standing around, maybe they don't have a job. You know, they're not doing something else. So they can make this procession. Yeah. It's like this hodgepodge group of people who get involved. And the liberating vision of that for me is really finding finding places for the multiplicity of roles. And I think, you know, I've read this described as it's a procession of peasants, mm-hmm. you know. And that, too, stands in stark contrast to the, the imperial and military procession we imagine, which is of generals and soldiers marching in sort of probably rigid metrical procession. And this has this kind of down-home, ragtag, spontaneous quality against the backdrop of being choreographed, mm-hmm. both at the same time. Yes. Sometimes in our work we talk about respectability politics. Yes. And being respectable as the way to access and gain political power. And over and over again, Jesus is anything but respectable. And that's the place to me where this feels really queer mm-hmm. in a way, is that there's it's taking the trope of the procession and it's queering it. And it's saying, what I hear in here is that anyone who happened to be along the road at this time had the chance to jump in. Right. The other thing that jumps out to me tactically is what we see in verse 11. They entered Jerusalem, they went into the temple, they looked around at everything. It was already late. He went out to Bethany with the child. So when I drill down on this, you see they go to Jerusalem and they go right to the temple. And that's going to be the site of this incredible charged action that happens later in the week, right? Overturning the tables at the temple and calling out the temple. They don't stop to eat. They don't go visit people. They go right into the place where they're going to really amp up the volume of things. And then they leave, not just the temple, but they leave Jerusalem. And I think that concept of like, if we embrace this concept that, at least for some of us, part of the call is going into Jerusalem and spending parts of time in Jerusalem, it doesn't mean you're there all the time. You know, it's like you can't stay underwater forever. Right. You can't be in outer space forever. You have to come back and get grounded and get fed and recharged and be safe. And then you can go back into Jerusalem. And that's that piece to me, from a tactical perspective, is partly how I approach and I think how I see a lot of other people approaching this question of how do we stay safe if we're using the strategy of going into Jerusalem? Right. How do we stay true to our authentic identities when we're going to be in a place where those identities are make us unsafe? Right. And I think part of it is about having a place to go back to, to fuel up, recharge, rest, be loved. Yeah. Be affirmed. And, and here Jesus is choosing his moment again. It's too late. There's right. nobody here. Later, it says the very next day they come back and go back into the temple, and that's when he overturns the tables of the money changers. I imagine the flurry of activity that the temple held wasn't happening in that late hour. So he's like, right. not right now. Yeah, we see, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying and he overturned the tables of the money chargers. So this would have been like the height of the market. Mm-hmm. You can't do political theater when the office is closed. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. And so part of that fueling up, getting grounded, is also the awareness of which battles are the most strategic or which which moments are the highest impact. And also I think, again, from a strategic and tactical perspective, it's also the difference between being author of an action, you know, authoring an action that's sort of on offense when you choose the time, place, location versus reaction. So Bree Newsome knew the time, the day, the moment she was going to go to the flagpole. Right? She, she chose, as I understand, she chose that. And that's sort of being on offense. When we think about Charlottesville, it was reactive. Brave folks being reactive to this planned demonstration from the alt-right, yeah. white supremacists. And those are really different kinds of scenarios. And you can use the element of surprise in different ways, and you face different kinds of risks. I see this, what we see in the text, and what we see Jesus orchestrating is this very deliberate sort of strike. Yes. On his terms. Yeah. At the time he chooses. Yeah. Which. And what comes later is going to be really reactive. Mm. When he's brought in by the authorities. When he's hung on the cross. Right. And in that moment, yes, he continues to be a central participant in the public resistance. But that's the moment when the disciples and the women who've been with him. I mean, that's the moment when they're called into action. Yes. He in this action with the temple later and in the demonstration into Jerusalem, if he, I see that as catalyzing something. He's, let, he's, he's setting off a chain of reactions, which Brie Newsom set off a chain of reactions around, is this flag, the Confederate flag, going to be in the South Carolina? Was that the capital? The capital, thank you. <laughs> yeah. The word. Right, and in that instance, right, I mean, her action combined with the horrible massacre mm-hmm. in Charleston I think created a context in which policymakers who had been perfectly content to A, ignore slash embrace the status quo of the flag flying, or B, had dem- you know had demonstrated zero sense of urgency and a lot of recalcitrance around any change, or who might have responded by sending it to umpteen committees and subcommittees and deliberations and task force ultimately for mealy mouth recommendations. Instead, what was created was this in that if you think back to sort of South Carolina and the South in that moment, the horrible grief of this massacre in Charleston and this, so this racially motivated massacre in Charleston. And then Brie Newsom just goes and does it. Yeah. You know, and she demonstrates that this action that we're sort of acting as if we're saying, can we get a man's mission on Mars? This action is actually just about going up the flagpole and taking the flag right. down. And almost any one of us could do that as a physical action. Right. And that's sort of, I think, part of the power of some of this, right, is that these are some of those powerful forms of activism are actually very simple actions. It's processing into a city on a donkey. It's, I mean, I, I couldn't, I, it seems hard to climb up a flagpole. <laughs> I don't think, I, I don't think <laughs> And I think there was a lot of climbing climb equipment involved and this fodder who was, <laughs> but, you know, like, that's an action we can take and we can imagine. But the power of these, the power, it's the way, you know, the power of law and the power of power mm-hmm. paralyzes us into thinking that we can't just go down and do it. Right, because every, let me get science, every action has an equal, equal and opposite reaction. So in some sense, I mean, Brie Newsom is such a good example, Re- a reaction to a horrific shooting in Charleston, but a horrific <laughs> hundreds of years of racial injustice in South Carolina. You know, I think we see those moments, sometimes those sparkling, amazing moments of flow. 
of doing something that is so called and so purpose-filled and think we could never do that ourselves. I could never climb a flagpole. And sensing that sense of despair that, well, I'm always reacting. I can't get ahead of it. In this, we see, and even with the We Do campaign, it was in reaction to the laws preventing same-sex couples from getting marriage licenses. But you found agency. And finding that agency is so key. Laws that discriminate against people are about denying their humanity and limiting their agency. Like, that's the intent of the law. That's at the heart of it. HB2. Yes. Another example that we talked about. The anniversary is tomorrow. You know, HB2, I think, is a perfect example of that. It's dehumanizing, and it's trying to police and patrol people's ability to be human and have human functions in public by saying you can only use the restroom. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, all of it's preposterous and very violent, and... Part of the ways when people, and I think it starts with the most impacted folks, that the leadership of those who are most impacted needs to drive those responses. Yeah. Because if you're not fully impacted by something, it can be easy to misapprehend what's at stake or to fail to perceive the safety questions or the risks. And I think when those who are most impacted are positioned as the architects of what agency will be and what resistance will look like, there's a lot of power that comes from that. I was at a Moral Monday action around HB2 in Raleigh. Were you there? There were thousands of people yeah. there. I don't know if we were there on that same day. This was I was at one, but I don't know if we were at the same one. <laughs> there were a bunch. And there were, you know, there's public restrooms in the North Carolina General Assembly building. And part of the insanity of that law is that there was never any provision to enforce it. It was all about the expression of this violent ideology and this transphobic ideology. And it and, and the sheer expression of it seemed to sate the appetites of the people who authored the law. They, seemed, they had zero interest in enforcement to the extent that the buildings within North Carolina General Assembly legislative building were not in any way being policed or monitored. Right. Thankfully. Right, because, I mean, right, they should have never been. But you have, you, you also have to think about that part, right? Like, right. you go to all this trouble to pass this law, and and you don't even think about enforcement? Yeah, a whole 12 hours, Jasmine. Right. <laughs> but the powerful resistance I saw was trans folks and gender nonconforming folks in the building that day using the restroom that corresponded to their gender. And that was very different than a lot of cis folks who I think were trying to figure out how to be allies and to show resistance who were like, I'm going to go into the other restroom and it just, those actions just quickly got very convoluted because they didn't have that sort of authenticity and truth. Right. And, but when trans and GNT folks were doing that as an act of A, necessity, and B, resistance, right. it had this whole different power. And it was in Jerusalem. Yes. It was in the General Assembly building. And I think that those moments when they happen have a particular kind of power and resonance. And who can come back it? I mean, right. when we did the We Do campaign, sometimes the couples would be folks in their 80s who'd been together for 50 years and their grandkids were there. And you're like, okay, come back come back at this. Yeah. And that's part of, I think, the power of when people summon within themselves the courage to show up in their authentic identity as who they truly are in these really contested Jerusalems and say, this is who I am and this is the action I'm taking that is disruptive solely because you've created a discriminatory policy or practice or tradition that says I don't belong in this space. And I, I, I think that we have 
a calling and invitation right this weekend to participate in an action led by people most impacted by gun violence, the March for Our Lives, where I learned that for most of the marches, the people who are going to be speaking from the stage are youth. And it's such a powerful moment that we're in right now that has been called for for so many years by black and brown youth, first and foremost, around the gun violence that has impacted them and their families and has been catalyzed by some of the, by the Parkland shooting uh, most recently. And I want to hold a vision of liberation for those of us who witness and participate in in those actions as a vision of the kingdom and kingdom of God, where we center those most marginalized and impacted and the profound transformation that's possible as more and more people join in the road to Jerusalem. I couldn't agree more. One of the practices we have at the end of our meeting is to name and think about what feels like one thing that we want to take with us for ourselves in this conversation? This is a text I read a lot and I think about a lot, but it's been a long time since I've had the time and space to go deeper with it. So part of what I take from this conversation is the gratitude for you initiating that process and teaching me in that process. And that, to me, that part of why I love the Bible is somehow every time you read it, it shows up in a new way. And that feels like part of sort of the, the miracle and the, the gift of the faith is that it's always showing up in new ways. And I think about that relative to something you said a few minutes ago, that we hope when we do these actions that model or prefigure a world we're trying to create, and when we make joy central to them, we hope it creates ways for people to bring their best selves and their better angels into the fold, so to speak. And that orientation towards saying, towards everyone we know, you might change in ways that surprise you and me. To me, part of that orientation, almost all of that orientation comes from faith and from being taught constantly by faith and by spirit that like we never know what's happening tomorrow. And that, that makes it, you know, the city of joy and the city of pain. <laughs> but that's sort of what's on my mind and sort of on my heart right now as we conclude this conversation is remembering to not just look at a text and be open to understanding it in a new way or seeing a different detail, but to look at people that way too. People in Jerusalem. Because there's people who live in Jerusalem every day, right? There's those of us who have to really negotiate the way we come into and out of spaces that feel like Jerusalem. And then there are people who live there every day, and that's their home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What could they have taught us about Jesus's ability to come in and out that maybe we didn't know before? Yeah. What about you? The thing that I'm reminded of in our conversation and in this text is that we're living in times that feel so robbed of our agency, that feel so reactive, and all we can do is just be in a, a, a negative kind of flow, just being dragged along this river that keeps crashing over us. And this text is a, such a reminder that of that positive and negative reaction. Like we can react and claim our agency 
and involve people in that participation that leads to liberation and to look for spaces and places and times when that is called for, when it's something that I can do a simple action that helps remind me and those around me that, that we have far more power than we ever give ourselves credit for, whether it's calling my legislature, showing up for the march on Saturday, or even something simple like reaching out to somebody that I know is hurting, you know, that we don't have to just be dragged along by this toxic climate, that we can be something far more liberative, even just in ourselves. Devin, I thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. You are someone who I've always admired and watched and, and just been in awe of your political and strategic astuteness, that you, you see the flow of these moments. And I believe that the South is a better place because of the people you've worked with. Thank you so much. And right back at you. Lots of love and awe at the work you do in the ministry. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us, and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterian, MLP.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.